everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is the waning hours here in Israel of January 15th, the 23rd day of Tevet. And I am so excited to have on the line an old friend, Mark Schiff, who just put out a great book called Why Not? Uh, Comedian, I'm sure many of you have heard of him, have even seen his shows. Mark is way over on the other side of the planet in uh, my old stomping grounds in Los Angeles, California. Mark, thank you so much. Welcome to Rejuvenation. Hello, uh, Eve. This is the first time that I've done a podcast where someone said the month was Tevet. This was a first. It's usually only in uh, January, February, March. Right. So So, uh, at some point I realized that it was important to start using the Hebrew dates. Uh, You and I both lead meaningful Jewish lives, and uh, we tend to use the dates that have to do with Jesus, who is, I'm sure, a really nice guy, but he's not somebody that, you know, we necessarily run our lives over. And I think we should at least do the balance, the, the date that the world goes by, but also the date of the Jewish calendar, which is very meaningful. So good. And you know what I did? The other, you reminded me what I did the other day. I signed an email with my Hebrew name for the first time. There you go. So what I did a few years ago is I wrote out my charity checks for the Jewish New Year using the Hebrew date, except the bank got a little freaked out and wouldn't accept it because the bank doesn't go by that here. So I had to rewrite all the checks. But I was trying to make a point. They got the point and then they told me to go back to the Gregorian calendar and leave all that ideology for another time. Not necessarily another place because I live in Israel, but definitely for another time. Anyway, um, so I'm so glad that I managed to accomplish a first for you. Um, This book, uh, some of the stories I knew, because I've spoken to you over the years, um, originally, and you mentioned it in the book, a trip that you took to stay rot, uh, what has it got to be, 20 years ago with some other comedians here in Israel? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Avi Avi Lieberman and uh, a bunch of people. Yeah, it was incredible. You drove us there. Yeah, we we got I guided you there. We toured the place. It was Wednesday Rot, which is right outside of Gaza, was getting like nonstop bombardments. Uh, and you guys did something pretty brave for people who don't live here, even for people who do live here. And we went down there. And, and I just know that you're incredibly tied to Israel. And you're here as often as you can be. And I get to see you when I go back to Los Angeles, which makes it really nice. Right. But this book is, um, is raw. And I know that as a comedian, and it's something that you mentioned in the book, and of course, you're very good friends with Jerry Seinfeld, who writes the foreword to the book, and with whom I think you were just with a couple of days ago. Um, how, how does that, well, let's just jump into that a second before we get into the book itself. Comedians get up and share a lot of personal things with a room full of strangers. Is that, is that, is that like a basic when it comes to comedians? No? It depends what kind of comedian you are. It, uh, but yes, great comedy comes from great pain. Mm-hmm. So you share it. That's our way of uh, kind of dealing with it. You know, if you don't talk, it's not going to go away anyway. So right. you might as well tell people about it. You might as well get paid doing it. Right. Uh, so instead of paying for therapy, you get paid. Yeah. Yeah. So Brilliant idea. Um, yeah. You turn your 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 uh, uh, scars to stars, as they say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, yes, we get up in front of a room of strangers, but not 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 every not not always. I I do talk about my growing up and uh, my wife, who I'm married thirty three years, and uh, I fetch about her and <laughs> how annoying she can be sometimes. And she never minds it as long as I bring a check home. If I start telling people, you know, 
and not get paid, then she's very upset about it. Right. You shouldn't have shared that unless you were getting paid for it. Right. I mean, are people there? Actually, yeah. People I actually say to my wife, if she, if my wife has had a show of mine, um, they'll come over there after and go, are you really like that? You know? <laughs> and uh, but she, she's used to that. <clears throat> are there are there comedians who have to, had to drop out of comedy because their spouses did not like being spoken about? Anyone that you um, know? Yeah. You know something? Well, I'll give you, I'm not sure if this is a perfect example, but um, I think like a guy like Howard Stern, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you've ever seen the show. He was a married guy. And then on his show, we'd have these beautiful women, you know, scantily clad sitting on his lap. Right. And his marriage didn't work out. Hmm. You know, you think- certain things you, you know, if you go into really, uh, Chris Rock had that issue. He he would he really dug deep into the, the pains of his marriage and mm-hmm. about wanting to sleep with other women uh, as opposed to his wife, and it it, it causes friction. Mm-hmm. I can, can well imagine. Yeah, how can it not? Yeah. I mean, that would seem the obvious. Yeah. I don't know how a spouse, and I would imagine has female comedians might have the same issue with their husbands. Yeah, Same well, way. this is this has been going on since the beginning of time mm-hmm. with comedians. Uh, men comedians always are, you know, yacked about their wives, and women comedians like Phyllis Stiller or any of these Joan Rivers, right. they all yell about their husbands mm-hmm. or boyfriends. This is this is this is when you get married to a comedian, you sign it. This should be in the ketubah. I will talk about you and tell people personal things that mm-hmm. annoy me about you. Mm-hmm. Should be right in the ketubah, line right. seven. And if you can't handle it, then d- don't meet me under the wedding canopy. Yeah, yeah. That's although right. I suppose it still has to be difficult. But what the one of the ways you characterize yourself, though, is a clean comedian, as opposed to those who get up there and just spew a whole lot of four letter words and get laughs that way. Is that something that you've been able to easily stick with over the years? Yes. Um, you know, it's funny how that started. It was, it was sort of a uh, well, first of all, I came out of an era, 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 era. era. So yeah. I came out of what it was. You know what I'm talking about. A time about. period. <laughs> yeah. All the comedians that came before me were clean. You know, Milton Berle, Don Rickles, uh, mm-hmm. Shecky Green, Alan King, even Robert Klein. All these people were clean. So my heroes were people that I watched and, uh, you know, adored they didn't curse on stage off stage right. is, is a whole different thing but on stage they not. the new comedians now everyone they watch it's it's completely uh off the wall with what people are willing to say mm-hmm. um by the way back to the wife thing little i don't yeah. say anything that hopefully embarrasses her there's 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 a line that i will not and other comedians will not cross and i have this conversation with jerry with seinfeld right there's certain things uh that we, we won't say because it, it it will be embarrassing to them and it could be hurtful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can imagine that. But, you know, you mentioned at the very beginning that comedians are, are really making people laugh coming from their great pain. I think a lot of that learned that when it came to Robin Williams, for example, who was an incredibly hysterically funny human being. And it turns out after he passed away that it came out that it came from uh, like, I mean, obviously, pain that he couldn't live with. So it, right. is that true across the board? Would you make that, like, really say that statement that to be a comedian 
you you have you you're coming from a place of of really deep sorrow inside no 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 more than any other job everybody okay. comes from uh some sort of agony mm-hmm. and uh feeling left out and not paid attention whatever it is with everybody no more than anybody else okay i mean look dentists supposedly dentists commit suicide more than anybody so i mean you know I was in dental school for a year. I, I just, yeah, I just missed that. Bullet. Everybody hates the dentist. You know, that's the reason. You know, not everybody loves a comedian. So, but everybody hates the dentist. They, well, I think just, it's also yeah. hard to have a profession where people are looking up your nose all day. I mean, that's, you know, one of the yeah. things that I would say would be difficult. But yeah, I have heard about that about dentists. And they also have very bad backs from that constant leaning thing. So it's yeah. good you didn't go into dentistry. But your book, no. um, is this the first book you've written? I wrote one 18 years ago. I'm a very slow writer. Um, I wrote a book with somebody else 18 years ago called uh, I Killed Le- uh, uh, True Stories of the Road by America's uh, Greatest Comedians. And mm-hmm. it's 200 road stories that we collected and edited of mm-hmm. other comedians. This is the first book I wrote by myself. Yes. And, wh- and so why now? Why not? Which is the name of the book. Mm-hmm. Um so I've always, I've always, uh, I've been a writer my whole life. I started writing when I was 12 years old and I started earning a living writing as a comedian at 28. And I've never not earned a living, thank God, as a comedian, and as a writer. But um, I always wanted to write a, uh, a book. So when COVID, when I, when, when I, when I took my COVID vacation, like mm-hmm. we all took. Yeah. The, uh, our two, forced uh, vacation. vacation. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I thought um, I I'd started writing essays to begin. I, I'd, I'd written some essays and I thought, OK, this doesn't look good. It looks like I'm not going back to work for a long time. Why not write a book? And two words can change your life. Like if I would have, you know, thought, uh, no, no way I'm going to write a book. It wouldn't have gotten done. But I thought, why not? And I sat down and uh, I, I wrote six five, six hours a day, you know, pretty much every day for over two years. Wow, that's very disciplined. Incredibly disciplined. The older I get, the more discipline and focus I seem to have. I'm going the opposite way. Mm-hmm. It's a, and it's interesting because I knew you when you were about 40 pounds heavier than you are now. And you talk about it in the book, so I know that I'm not saying anything that you don't want people to know. No, no, and you became incredibly cheat. disciplined with that, with taking don't off the cheat. weight, with keeping it off. Yeah. Right. By the way... Don't don't cheat me out of it. It's fifty pounds. Fifty pounds. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That was that's a lot. It is a huge amount of weight. I mean, it's it's not like some people have, but <clears throat> I think combined my dining room chairs weigh about fifty pounds. That, mm-hmm. That's that's what I I would each chair weighs about eight pounds or something. I have six of them, so that I was carrying around six dining room chairs. Mm-hmm. For a long time. Uh, years. Yeah. Crazy. And um, yes, I lost the weight. I decided, again, you know, two things happened. Uh, I had, it always seems that I have some sort of epiphany every once in a while. Okay. And when you have those things, you better grab hold of it because you're not going to have another one for maybe ever. Mm-hmm. Two things happened. I was walking in the street and I dropped something. And I had trouble bending over to get it. And this was like 15 years ago. I should not have had that problem. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, man, you're in trouble. You're, you're like so stiff. And then 
I was walking with Jerry Seinfeld and we saw a guy with a walker. And he said, you know, you don't have to be that guy if you don't want to be. And Jerry works out an hour and a half, two hours a day. And I put those two together. I don't like where I'm heading. And I don't have to be that guy. I mean, listen, anything can happen, you know, and I could be that guy. But if I work on it and I drop the weight and I never look back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that's a long time to keep it. Yeah. Losing the weight is easy. Keeping it off is murder. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Every day I'm fighting with the, uh, you know, the Yitzhara, you know. Right, the the, evil inclination. Yeah. Yeah. Every day there's a little, there's a fat guy inside of me that goes, let's get some cupcakes. Let's get some pizza. Let's get, let's see. And I got to, I got to shut him up. Right. But you would say that you were heavy for emotional reasons? Not like a slow metabolism. Yeah. You were yeah, creating yeah, no, uh, no. like a, a a protective coat around yourself, literally. Yeah, most people are that. You know, very rare when somebody's just uh, fat by nature. You know, um, can you use the word fat these days? I don't know. On on here, you can. I'm very politically incorrect. Okay. Yeah, I also say yeah. male and female. So, I was, I, just as a segue, um, my husband, this is pretty personal, he gave me a podcast to listen to about menopause the other day. He's a doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm listening to it. And it's a medical, it's a medical podcast. And it's talking about persons who are postmenopausal. I thought, oh, right. person, persons, like, because men, of course, are, fall into that category. So, no, here we talk about things that are distinctly female and distinctly male. And uh, so feel free. Right. Fly, just go fly with <clears throat> it. Yes. So, yes, I, it was a protective measure for me to some degree. And it was my way of making me feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's a big deal. I, uh, I have a side of me that uh, likes to condemn myself and, uh, you know, make myself. It also, in, in, a, in a way, was, was my way of keeping me out of uh, kind of uh, the next level uh, in my career. You know, if you don't feel good about yourself, you just don't put yourself in situations that uh, are going to move you ahead. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. If you don't feel self self confident, right? Right. No, terrible. Mm-hmm. Why wow, your career's changed? Your career's picked up since you lost the weight. Well, yeah. In in many ways, I mean, really? I uh, a I'm a, I'm a better performer. Mm-hmm. Because I I, I don't feel ashamed when I go up on stage. Mm-hmm. You know. One of the last times when I was heavy, this guy, Dom Herrera, it's also in the book, he came up behind me as they were introducing me. He's a friend of mine. He was joking, but it, it hit home. He goes, they're going, and now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome to the stage a very friend. And they're introducing me, and he whispers in my ear, you are so fat. <gasps> and I wow. went on stage, and I, that's all I heard in my head, and my shirt was sticking out of my pants because I couldn't tuck it in. Because, you know, like when you, you're mm-hmm. overweight, the shirt keeps popping out or the button, the last button keeps popping open because your neck is so thick. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. Wow. So, yeah. Hmm. Sometimes hmm. I grip all the lesson. And, uh, but a day at a time, I try to uh, be kind to myself and uh, do the right things and uh, keep the weight off and stay healthy. I exercise seven days a week. Right, right. But it's not the first thing. Food is not the first addiction that you've had. At least according to what you write. No, I've had, I've had, I've had a uh, a smorgasbord. Mm-hmm. You know, like at a wedding. You know, would you like right. to try this? Yes, I will. <clears throat> I started drinking when I was fourteen. 
And I became an alcoholic very quickly, probably the first night. You know, people don't realize this about drunks, about alcoholics, that sometimes a kid will drink and his first night he'll get killed <gasps> because he did it because he, he drank too much. He poisoned they, himself. They don't really, huh? Yeah. And they don't realize that it's because he was an alcoholic and it only took one time for it to kill him, you wow. know, to, to, because very few people their first time just get so totally lotto plastered. So yeah. people don't realize sometimes you know, and, and they call it an accident, but, Hmm. Uh, so yeah, so I was drinking at a, a drug run when I was young and, uh, food, uh, a little bit of gambling. Mm-hmm. All those things Whatever to get sex- the adrenaline surge. Yeah. When I get married, my wife cured me of my sex addiction. You know, <laughs> you know, she just said, no, it's not going on anymore. And and that was that. So okay. I was cured. That was like instant uh, cure. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I don't think you could write a self-help book, though, about marriage therapy, though, let's, uh, based on that. I'll just, no. I'll just put that out there. So as my listeners have probably already deduced, uh, there's not much about yourself that you won't talk about. I mean, the book, no. the book at times I found painful to read because some of it resonated with things that have happened to me, um, you know, not having uh, the warmest and fuzziest set of parents in terms of you know, building your self-confidence and, and making you feel that unconditional love. Um, but your parents are no longer living. Is Did that give you the freedom to write this book? Could you have written this book if they were still alive? So it's an interesting thing. My my mother and, uh, and by the way, in the book, I do cover that I, um, I'm, I'm good with them. Uh, now. I've gotten through... I, yeah, I hold no anger or resentment that I know of towards them, and I love them deeply, and I know how much they love me. Mm-hmm. So I I went, I went full circle with this one because a lot of people don't, and and they drag that their whole lives. I refuse to be seventy years old, yakking about my mother. Mm-hmm. So that's over. Um, yeah, my parents are gone. I used to talk about, I, I talk about my mother in the act and when she was alive, she, she was not happy about some of the things she heard in the act. Um, mm-hmm. So that was, that was a little thing I had to deal with. Right. But yeah, I, I wanted to wait till they were gone, but I don't think that I said it. There's one story in there about my mother and there was, there was kind of a uh, violence involved of sorts. And I wrote it and had it published because I thought it would be helpful to other people. It wasn't to dish my mother at all, to hurt her. It was because I thought other people probably went through some of this. And this Mm -hmm. is the possibility to don't feel so alone. Right. Yes, because one of the things about growing up with difficult parents, and my parents are alive, so I'm going to leave it for now at that, um, is that you can't talk about it with anybody else. And you, as right. an only child, really had nobody to talk about it with at all. Um, but but you say in your book, I mean, the way you describe your mother, she, she had some, whether she was bipolar or depressed, or she right. had something going on right. there that was not diagnosed. You were able right. to see that They didn't diagnose in those days. Yeah, it was probably bipolar. She would have incredible highs and incredible lows, get migraine headaches, go to bed for days at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, she was out of control and didn't mean it. But when you're a kid... 
you don't know that and you need to be protected. And my father, uh, who's incredibly wonderful, loving guy, was just too weak to protect me in the way I needed. Right. And that caused uh, a lot of fear and anxiety in, mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this book is some kind of catharsis for that, you think, at this point? Yeah, you know, I um, there were many tears writing it. You know, I, it was it was freeing in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, how I, I don't know if I say it in there, but how I found out, I realized as an adult how my mother really cared so much about me was after she passed on. There's two stories in there. One's called 19 Boxes about mm-hmm. opening uh, boxes, you know, of her stuff. And then I found my baby book that she put together. And it was my one-year-old with the cards and a little clipping of my hair and my baby blank. And I saw this and I said, nobody puts a book this beautiful together so lovingly that doesn't care about you. Mm -hmm. And that book was the answer to uh, how much my mother loved me. Right. That's, did your kids know her? No. No. Uh, my my father died before I was married, and my mother was in bad shape when my kids were really little, like they were like four, two, mm-hmm. and you know. right. Um, she she felt so bad about herself when she was living in Florida. She wouldn't even come out of the house uh, she to see anybody. Mm-hmm. She became basically a shut in, mm-hmm. and that's how she passed alone in her apartment. She fell off a chair one day and just dropped. Right. Right. Wow. So, well, yeah. yeah. So none of the people that you live with now, I mean, your wife and your three boys, or they've grown up, but uh, really haven't, you know, a sense of, of who, how you grew up and who you grew up with. That's why I wrote the book, too. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know about your kids, but uh, I didn't ha- I've never had long conversations with my kids, even my wife to that extent, about what it was like for me growing up and what my family was like. So I figured before I croak, I'm, I got to put this down. The original idea of writing these stories was not necessarily to get it published. Okay. That just kind of turned out to be that. I didn't mm-hmm. set out to make any money or get published. I set out to write this kind of memoirs thing for my family to, to learn about me. Hmm. And it will be more valuable to them actually after I'm dead. Because <laughs> they, they read it now. No, they read it now, but they read it. I'm alive and they're talking, you know, and they kind of, you know, yeah, I got, but after I'm gone and they dig back into the book, they'll see what I was talking about. It'll mm-hmm. have, it'll, it'll resonate a lot more. Mm-hmm. So what, what's so fascinating about this book, and it's not like any other book that I've read because I, I, you know, I've read memoirs and other things that comedians have written, but you come from a very interesting place because your your Jewish soul is very much a part of who you are. So like, you know, you might make a joke on one page or talk about something very painful that happened in your childhood. And then you move, you give like a little Torah tidbit, or you speak right. about some rabbi that you met. So it, it's really right. like going into your head and seeing all these different sides of you that you now put down on the page. Was that just kind of a natural flow? That's just the way you think that's the way you are. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I try to learn, you know, I, I go to shul, I, I listen to a lot of Rebbeim talking, mm-hmm. a lot of rabbis talking. Uh, I'm always reading, to some degree, Jewish philosophies of sorts. And uh, I also 
ran every Jewish thought that I had. When I had the thought, I put it down, and then I ran it through a rabbi, Rabbi uh, Yossi Shamus. Yes, I and grew up with his wife, June. That was June. A, that okay, was so a funny know. thing to read. Yes, it's an yeah. old childhood so friend. They, yeah, there there are friends, right? Get a couple. Is mm-hmm. the name of the story there? So, um, Rabbi Shamus, even though he's not my uh, pulpit rabbi, it's Rabbi Muskin is my pulpit rabbi. Uh, any concept I have, he's so knowledgeable and so learned that whatever I would say to him, he knew exactly where the sources were in in, in the books, mm-hmm. and he would uh, cut and paste and send it to me, and then I would condense into the story to make sure I was I was accurate because I didn't want to put down any of these Jewish ideas, and people go, "What the hell is this guy?" You know, is he? <laughs> so I, I really did have uh, rabbinical supervision. Mm-hmm. That's that's important. Yes. So you yeah, know, this book it, would not have been made, it would not have been made without uh, Yossi. Right, but it wouldn't have been made uh, without. I mean, the thoughts are very. Look, I, I read the book as someone who's familiar with that world, and I know these ideas, and I know what a kiddush is, and I know what a brit milah is. But I would imagine right. that there are many people who read this book, and this for them is kind of the first uh, look into the lifestyle that you lead and the beliefs that you have. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of learning that, that happens here also, but you know, a few minutes ago when you were mentioning a lot of the comedians that you grew up with and, and so many of them are Jewish. And I know this is a question that's been asked ad nauseum, but what, what is your opinion? Why do you think that way out of proportion to our numbers in the population, so many comedians have a Jewish background, which is not to say live a Jewish life the way you do a full Jewish life, but and some of them would call themselves agnostic or atheists or I don't know what, but have that that same background, that very Jewish background. You think so? Like, it's less so. It's yeah. less, less so now than it used to be. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, in the sixties and seventies, say fifties, sixties, seventies, eighty-five percent of the comedians in America were Jewish. Wow, that's an astonishing number. Astonishing, considering how small a percentage of people right. we actually are. Right. In the country, 85% were Jewish. So I'll give you a, a brief thing. Back in the silent era of film, there were no Jewish stars in silent movies. Chaplin, Keaton, Arbuckle, um, Harold Lloyd, any of those guys. Until a Jew could talk, they were not considered <laughs> funny. Jews needed microphones. Mm-hmm. And once they started talking... And uh, they could they could yak to the crowd. I also believe that Jews legitimized um, Jewish comedians legitimized Jews in this country more than almost anybody, because you'd have these non-Jews sitting at home in the Midwest. They've never met a Jew before, right? Ever, and uh, nowhere near them. And, and they they got all these concepts. And then they they watch Ed Sullivan and they watch these TV shows. And one after another, Jews are coming out, and they're making them laugh. Right. And they're sitting at home going, hey, these Jews are funny people. Unbelievable. And look at the, these are great. I love these Jews. Mm-hmm. So without the Jewish comedians, I don't know if we would have made the headway of uh, getting into these people's lives. We were, we were, there were no Jewish talk show hosts. It was only the comedians. The All guests. the talk show hosts hmm. were non-Jews. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the humor, just to play devil's advocate for a second, if that's appropriate, um, a lot of the humor is is self-deprecating. A lot of Jewish humor is making fun of Jews, is making fun of Jewish life and of symbols and all of that. 
So do you think that that caused people to think in a different way about the Jews than we really are? Like we're funny, but we're also a little bit strange. Is that possible? No, I I don't think so because every group makes fun of themselves. The Italian comedians like Pat Cooper used to, you know, rant on Italians. And, you know, the black comedians, not Cosby, but uh, Pryor and all, they would rant on the black situation. The Irish comedians, boom, boom, boom. So Mm -hmm. every group has their people and their thing. The thing is that when you you rant about something, it's going to be universal if it happened to you. Anything that happened to me happened to somebody else. Okay. It's just the way it is. The, the, the you know that that's the only way a comedian can work. Whoever mm-hmm. he is, people have to identify with what you're saying. Otherwise, they cannot and will not laugh. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, they, you're helping they, them get through whatever no. it is they're going through because they're to some degree laughing at themselves and their situation as well. Totally. You know, the other night I worked with Seinfeld. Uh, what? probably at least 50, 60% of the audience is not Jewish. Mm-hmm. Out there. You know, it's not like 3,000 Jews come out to see him. Right. It's it's a mix. They're all laughing. Mm-hmm. So you're touching a nerve with everybody. You know, I'll do a, a, a Jewish show and uh, for Jewish people, and they'll say to me, do uh, the non-Jews get this? And I'll say, absolutely. Everything I just did to you, I do to them, except I don't uh, throw in a, a couple of the Jewish... Terms or something, yeah. That yeah. someone might not understand, Absolutely. right? Right. I'll tell you a very, quick, a very quick one. There was this woman from China. She was working at the comedy store, and uh, she'd come over to the United States. And I, I, she saw my act, and she came over and said, "How do you know my mother?" <laughs> and her mother, her mother and father worked in rice paddies in China. Never left China never did not work in the rice paddies. And she said, what you did was exactly who my mother was. Unbelievable. And you would say that on the face of it, she was nothing like your mother in terms of how she lived her life. No. There was one time I disagreed where Liza Minnelli came over to me. The great Liza Minnelli came over and said, you know, your mother and my mother are exactly the same. And I thought, no, your mother is Judy Garland. How is this possible? (laughs) That your right. mother who sold out, my, my mother used to work, walk around in the house coat. Your mother sold out Carnegie Hall. Yeah. You know, but she, what I said, right. Judy Garland was like too. Mm-hmm. There's a certain motherness funny, that right? you're, yeah, that's great. I mean, the book is sprinkled with some incredible meetings that you've had. You know, you, you minimize them in, in a very modest way. But really, I mean, you have met some of the greatest people in the of the twenty. Well, now it's twenty first century, uh, and but you do it in a very nice way, you know, and like in a very humble way in terms of that and how honored you were. And uh, I would say that there are some people out there who would say that about you. Oh, I met Mark Schiff. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever feel that way about yourself, or you're still not there where you realize no, that you know, you've touched uh, so many people? And I don't take myself serious. I can't. Rule 62, don't take yourself too serious. Uh, that's the downfall of comedians. When mm-hmm. you think you're actually when you think you're actually onto something, you know what you're doing. That's yeah. the end of you. Yeah. You have to have that little bit of lack of confidence. How hard is it to write new material all the time? I mean, you've been doing this for decades. 
Yeah, it's very hard. It's um, it's much easier to be Eugene O'Neill than it is to, uh, you know, write, write, you know, Eugene O'Neill. I mean, these guys wrote great drama because they couldn't write a joke. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, in fact, you want to hear something? Sure. I was listening. I, I, I've written two plays and um, I was listening to an interview the other day with Tennessee Williams probably one of the greatest American playwrights, yeah. living playwrights of all time. Right. Streetcar named Desire, you know, whatever it is. So the guy is interviewing him and says, uh, Tennessee, who are some of your favorite playwrights? And he goes, Samuel Beckett, who's a tremendous dramatist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ibsen, the uh, Swedish dramatist. Right. right. And then he goes, Neil, then he goes, Neil Simon. Really? What? Tennessee Williams loves Neil Simon? (laughs) Yes, he does. Of course he does. Everyone loves Neil Simon because nobody can write jokes like Neil Simon. And nobody can take 2,000 people in a Broadway theater screaming with laughter at the top of their head. You know? Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I I listen to it. I go, there it is. Tennessee Williams. It's like Shakespeare would go, uh, you know, you know, I like Alan King. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy. So that's a huge you know, Richard compliment. Burton, yeah. Richard Burton, one of the greatest actors that ever lived, right. when he was on Broadway, during intermission, he had a 15, 20-minute break, and next door to him was the great comedian Mort Saul working every night. Mm-hmm. He would actually walk over to the theater and watch Mort Saul perform, and he was so enamored watching Saul go, God, this guy's unbelievable. I wish I could be funny like this. People, you know... <laughs> It's amazing. Right. That no matter what your skill set is, you realize what you don't have and someone else has and you can appreciate it. That's a beautiful yeah. thing. Also, also being a comedian, the uh, it doesn't work if they don't trust you. If who doesn't trust they you? Have the audience? The audience. Yeah. When you walk out on stage, you, you ever have somebody walk up to you and you go, this guy, you, you know, you get the chills a little or you mm-hmm. just know that it's yes. off. When a comedian goes on stage, if they don't immediately feel... I like this guy. Well, you have to grab and them in the first thirty seconds. Not with your words, which with your aura, almost. Mm-hmm. They have to sense that you're okay, and they they trust you that you're not going to um, do anything that's because they can't laugh if they don't trust you. Very hard. Interesting. Very very. Hard. Mm-hmm. Wow, because interest laughter is somehow like letting go. Like showing yes. a different side of yourself? Yes. Huh. They have to feel like they're almost related to you. Oh, this guy's like my uncle, my father, my aunt. My, you know, they have to feel like he's mm-hmm. part of the family almost. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily feel that with actors. You know, when maybe with uh, Tom, uh, what's his name? Uh, great actor, which is, you know, he won like 16 Academy Awards. What, the modern actor, uh, Tom Cruise? Yeah, no, not Tom Cruise, the other Tom. You know, uh, uh Oh God! Why am I forgetting it now? Um, okay. Yeah, we'll so get back. To that. Yeah, there's certain actors that were so lovable, but for the most part, when most actors go on stage, you don't feel like they're members of your family. Mm-hmm. You're watching a show. You're not participating in it to some yeah. degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Hmm. so, you think there's a future for comedy? You know, I was just reading about this new technology, this AI technology that's like 
going to be writing papers and, and all this crazy stuff. You think that's going right. to change comedy because it can now write script or write jokes? I don't know if it can. I'm just just read about it really th- this week and about right. the huge changes it's going to cause everywhere. <clears throat> yeah. Well, comedy now is bigger than ever. It's never been this big. It's In what know, sense? In it, terms of people going to see live shows? Or? Yeah. People are se- the comedians are selling out everywhere they go. People are just dying to laugh. And uh, they've had it with uh, what's going on in many ways. Um, well, no, it's, a, I, it's like an I, escape know. from reality to some yeah. degree. You go out and you you know split yeah. your sides for yeah. an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. Comedians offer a respite from uh, you know the horror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah they people go and they go. I'm going to laugh for a while and just forget all this nonsense that's going on in my life. I'm forget that my uh, my father's dying or my 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 daughter hates me or my wife is yelling at me or my job is about to end. You know, I've had somebody. Every comedian who's done well, has had somebody walk up to them and thank them for making them forget their troubles. I've had, um, I remember one guy came over to me and said, you know, he's an older guy. He goes, you know, I, I take this heart medicine and I forgot to take it tonight. And after seeing you, you were my heart medicine. Oh, that's so that's nice. A, yeah. I and mean, there are yeah, medical people, studies that show that laughing is good for you. Whatever hormones or endorphins it lets out are really good for you on a physical level. That we should right. smile more, that we should laugh more. Yeah. People okay. leave comedy clubs feeling better than when they walked in. But do you have, and we were joking about it at the beginning of the show, that we can say women and we can say fat and we can say all of that here. But is there a greater sensitivity now in the audiences than there was just a few years ago? Are there certain jokes that you cannot make anymore because it crosses a line that you wouldn't have crossed 10 years ago, but now somebody would find offensive? <clears throat> there, there are some, but for the most part, uh, comedians can say still pretty much whatever yeah? they want. Okay. Yeah. I, I Somebody, oh, it was David Sedaris, the great uh, essayist, mm-hmm. story writer, David Sedaris. He's, he's one of the best ever. And he said, the problem now is people start yelling out before you get to the punchline. They they yell out with this. They don't think it's funny when you're just setting up the, the, the situation. Uh, they should wait to hear how it ends the joke and to see if they actually really don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's different. Now. People will yell out and ooh and ah a little, but not not too much. Mm-hmm. Not too much. Have you ever had situations where the audience kind of ruined your set because somebody was yelling or talking out or, you know, in some way didn't let you flow with what your show was supposed to be? Yeah, once in a while, because it, it, not too often, but in the nightclubs, you are dealing with drunks and you are dealing, you know, before you get on stage, they've had a couple of drinks, maybe they had dinner before they came in, they had some. So sometimes they're a little uh, thing. And sometimes, very rare with a woman yelling out, but sometimes a guy will try to uh, get a little insecure that his girlfriend or wife doesn't think he's as funny as this guy, and he tries to- uh, A little jealous of you, huh? Okay. So so what he's now done is dug a hole and buried himself, Mm -hmm. because we are trained like Marines to bury you alive. Mm -hmm. That's the deal. That's what we do. You, you don't want seven to get eight, a comedian's attention when you're in the audience. No. Six, seven years in a nightclub working late night to drunk people, we can destroy anybody in a, in, in a flick of a wrist. 
Wow. So don't screw with me. Okay. You hear that, audience? If you go here at a comedian, just sit there in the back quietly. <laughs> Enjoy, laugh, but don't, but don't, don't provoke. But on the other side, the other side of the book, there's, and I think you'll agree, there's a lot of very funny stuff in there. A lot of stories are just yes. plain humorous. Oh, in your book? Absolutely. I mean, I was laughing out loud, which I rarely do when I read a book. Yeah. It and was uh, very enjoyable. And the footnotes. Yes. I wrote I wrote a joke for every Yiddish word. Yes, I you wrote did. A, a joke. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you did. I was at, because I know what the words mean. So first I was reading it. I mean, I, you know, I know whatever, what a chuppah is, right? The wedding academy. But I found myself reading the footnotes anyway, because I realized it wasn't a description of that. There was going to be a joke in there that I didn't want to miss. <laughs> right, right, right. And that, that idea, the footnote idea came from my agent, Murray Weiss. Um, I, I had footnotes in, but I had the real, you know, answer to what the, the word was. He goes, you know, Mark, you're a comedian. Write a joke for each one of the footnotes. It was his idea. And then, uh, you know. Fits. Right, yeah. I, what, what is, what's wrong with me? Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but I did. I did not think of it. He thought of it and he deserves the, uh, the, the accolades. Yeah. So have you, I mean, your book's been out a few months now, right? How long? Not Came so long. In, uh, November, December, January, month and a half, two months. So have you gotten letters? Have you gotten feedback from the book? Well, on Amazon, there's tremendous reviews from people. Okay. Uh, that, how yes. much they love. I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of feedback from people. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know that people are not lying to you when people in different places tell you the same thing. Like when I was in New York, people would tell me how much they were moved and how much they laughed by certain things. And then in LA, other people would tell me that same thing. So they're not lying to me. So what Uh, you were saying about it being universal, there's people in different places are taking that same message. Yeah. And I got this uh, thing from a rabbi and uh, he said that one one night he, he he studies every night after dinner, and he was sitting reading my book, and he he felt that that was actually he didn't feel guilty about reading the book. He felt that he was actually learning stuff. Oh, that's great! And a little bit of religiously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't so sure how the Orthodox would uh, grab onto it, but they have in in a way that uh, they really like to do. Everybody, Reform, Conservative, and non Jews. But I wasn't mm-hmm. so sure with them because they're they usually don't some of them don't read like uh stuff like this. Right. But uh they uh And they I imagine you don't see too many of the very orthodox in the nightclub watching the live show. Or do you? You know, they're 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 they're, they're there with the yarmulkes. Yeah. Uh, they they do come out. Um not in droves. Mm-hmm. But they do certain shows that uh, a, a very merry Arab Christmas show. That people do, and uh, right. So, but yeah, they, they do come out, but the uh, very rare when you see like a Lubavitcher, you know, right? A, the very Orthodox, a, yeah, Chabadnik sitting there. Hmm. Um, hmm. But it's I like I mean, my second day with my husband, and so far we're going okay. Was to the comedy <laughs> store in Los Angeles, and it, it was it's a great date because you're sitting and laughing which is already, you know, putting everybody in a good mood. And there's something to talk about yeah. afterwards. I highly recommend going to a to see a comedian on a date. Uh, I don't know if enough people do it, but it's a very nice way of breaking the ice. As opposed to a movie where you're just sitting there and watching other people do things, it's it's more interactive. And uh, you can also sense a little bit about the people that you're with. 
So, mm-hmm. yeah. Do your friends go to hear you or they feel like, yeah, you know, I can hear him in synagogue. I don't have to go pay to see him in the club. Yeah. Um, yeah, they do. They do. And very rarely does a comedian like to have their friends or family come to see them. It's uh, we don't like having people that know us in the audience that much. Mm-hmm. It's very annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're people who we, we know we're being judged to begin with, because when you go up on stage and you, you're talking, everybody's sitting there judging you. And then when you got your family, you don't want to look like an idiot to them. So if you have a bad night or something like that, because if a comedian is bad and, and doesn't do well, people don't know what to say to you uh, afterwards because they just go, oh, God, this guy's awful. And he's, you know, <laughs> right, right. Uh, Embarrassed for him. Right. I hope he straightens out and gets another job. <clears throat> Did you watch so, the, the series Mrs. Maisel? Are you familiar with that? I did watch that? a few of them. How, how yeah. do you relate to that as a comedian? And, you know, because that's that's what she's doing. Although I have to say, I, I didn't watch it so much for the jokes. I watched it for her clothes. Uh, that She right. had the most incredible... Is the show still on anymore? I don't even know if it's coming back. Yeah, that is. was like the most incredible wardrobe over. I have ever seen in television. <laughs> All of the women were... It was just amazing. I, it must have won for costume design. But you was coming, possibly not, not watching it for the crinoline... Um, how, how did you feel about, you know, uh, a sit? Well, it wasn't really a sitcom. It was definitely a drama being done where the, the central character is trying to be. She's an aspiring comedian. Um, she, she, she was good. She was good. Not great, but she, mm-hmm. she was good. Very hard um, for somebody. Nobody's really, you, you know, there's a show called Hacks, H-A-C-K-S yes. on HBO. Right. I've heard of uh, it. Gene. And she she does she plays a comedian really well. Oh, actually, I Much watched it. What do you mean? I heard of it with the older. There's an older woman, and then that young screenwriter yeah. comes up to help yeah. her write her jokes. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I yeah, thought that I'm was horned. a great show. I enjoyed it's a great that. great show. Yeah, and she's she's she plays a better comedian than Maisel. Uh, but most people that play comedians that are not don't do a good job. They don't know how to. They, you just know it's fake. Even Dustin Hoffman, the great actor. Uh, played Lenny Bruce in a movie called Lenny, directed by Bob Fosse, the great director. Right. And he was not very good. It's mm-hmm. Again, there's something in the soul that if you don't have the soul of it, um, it, it just doesn't... You can't fake it. It's truthful. It's like you can't fake being a comedian. You can't act not it. Not really. Mm-hmm. No, not really. It's very... Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why the ones that played, uh, you know, like uh, Seinfeld or Tim Allen or these, they really understood the jokes or Roseanne or people today, you know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. they got it. Right. Right. Well, so I'm going to, I'm going to have to join the chorus and highly recommend the book. Why not? Because, uh, because why not? First of all, but because it really, it's, um, it's, it's going to touch everybody somehow. I mean, I know that it touched me in many different ways, also because, you know, we share a similar lifestyle. But um, but there's, there, I can't imagine anybody reading this book and not find something in, in there, A, to laugh hysterically about and to cry about. Like, wow, how, was he there? How does he know what happened to me in sixth grade? Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm blessed to be able to swing back and forth between uh, laughter and tears. That's the one one of the things that people bring up all the time about the book. On one one story, I'm reading, I'm laughing, then I turn the page, and boom, yeah, you know, the gut punch. My uh, 
my publisher, there's a fellow that works there. He's one of my editors. His name is Adam O'Brien, a wonderful person. And Apollo Publishers, they stepped up and, and understood this book. I, I got 37 rejections before really? anybody stepped up. Apollo Publishing, they, they've been absolutely wonderful. Adam lived in Brooklyn. He lives in Brooklyn. And he, when, it, when they, they first got the book to read it, to see if they liked it, he was riding back and forth on the train reading my book. And he said he was embarrassed, laughing out loud. People were looking at him. <laughs> like he was crazy. Like, this guy's reading something. He's like laughing hysterically out loud. He goes, Mark, I, you know, you can't do that to me on the, uh, you know. On the subway. On the train. Yeah. <laughs> the people look at me like I'm crazy. I'm sitting by myself laughing. Although on the subway so. in New York, you probably just fit in with everybody else if you're sitting there laughing for whatever reason. Yeah. I've been on the subway recently. It's an interesting place to be. All right. So, uh, well, thank you for sharing more of yourself and so people can get the book on you said on amazon of course on amazon it's on barnesandnoble.com it's why not lessons on comedy courage and chutzpah and are you doing a book tour people still do that i am oh so tell us where absolutely i'm doing it tomorrow night i'm at uh for monodies for the day school monodies we're doing their uh show for them. A hundred people are going to be there. Then I'm doing a, sh- uh, a book thing for an organization. You might've heard of called Weasel. Sure. Women's International Zionist, Zionist Organization. It's a great organization. Yeah. yeah. Gina, Gina Raphael, her mm-hmm. name is, she's one of the heads of this organization. Um, I think it was started in the 1920s by Chaim Weitzman's wife. Could be. Something. Yeah. It's definitely been. an old yeah. organization for sure. It's pre yeah. predates so, the modern state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I'm going to uh, Austin to do a book thing. And I did one in. Uh, yeah. So I'm doing them all over. So if people want to so know because they're listening and they want to come, like I know I have listeners from Austin. Hi, Steve. Stephen, how are you doing? Is there a place, a website, is something they can go and see your schedule? MarkShift.com. Okay. S-C-H-I-F-F. I also, by the way, okay. I, yeah, I want to say I have a podcast called You Don't Know Shift. Ooh, okay. And yeah, we we got that in there, right? Mm-hmm. And still clean, still clean. We've had a lot. Yeah, totally clean. Mm-hmm. It's your imagination, whatever you're thinking. I'm not in your head. <laughs> so we've had great artists on painters. We've had uh, a great comedian Jerry Seinfeld's going to come on soon. Judd Apatow's going to come on. We've had Kevin Nealon, Paul Reiser. You don't know Schiff. I have a co-host named Lowell Benjamin. He's he's a young guy. And the two of us are really, uh, it's a little marriage there. He's, he's wonderful to work with. Yeah. So good. You can hear that. I'm sure he's learning a and lot from you. Like, you know? I, would, I wouldn't be surprised since you have a few like years Like the book. Mm-hmm. You know, like the book, the podcast, hope nobody gets hurt. We're not tearing anybody apart. We're not saying nasty things about people. It's all very user-friendly. And when you walk away from some of our interviews, you're going to walk away feeling a little better. Okay, that's good. I mean, you talk in the book about having to deal with anger and reining that in and not being hurtful because those snappy answers you have probably faster than almost anybody else because that's how your brain works. And you've learned to control yourself from hurting somebody with those with those quick one-liners. And that's been a, a journey yeah. for you as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a daily uh, grind too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we I all wouldn't have be that. married thirty-three years. I wouldn't <laughs> be married thirty-three years if I didn't keep my mouth shut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? 
right? We know. Yeah, I'm not saying anything. Okay. No, <laughs> no, no. Learn to be smart enough to know when not to say anything. Mark Schiff, thank you so much. Yes. First of all, looking forward to seeing you. I'd rather see you here in Israel than Los Angeles. So you got to let me know when you're coming Same here. here. And uh, maybe do okay. a, you know, a comedy tour here in uh, Israel. There's enough people who understand English who I think would, you know, love what you do. You did it before, yes? I've been there, there. Uh, yeah. at least five times. Yeah, so five, on the six post, times. you haven't been here since before COVID, though. So I think it's time. 2018, mm-hmm. we did two nights. Uh, with I did two nights with Seinfeld at the uh, basketball stadium in uh, Tel Aviv. Yep, I was there. It was funny, yeah. but that was, you know, that's closing in on five years now. So I think it's time no. for a return trip, right? It's 2023. I agree. I, okay. I agree 100%. I'm going to be a Jewish mother. Thank and no, you. No, no Jew on that one. Good. <laughs> I, I need it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you to all my listeners. Thanks to Ben and Tabitha for putting the podcast out. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. Zionism, political and secular, says Ben-Gurion, held that Israel must be redeemed by its own efforts and by natural agency, that the Jewish people on its own must create the foundations of a new life. Well, I'm definitely looking to found a new life for my people in the land, although I'm not so sure we can do it on our own, because I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Join Rav Mike Foyer for the best Jewish history podcast. The Jewish Story on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com.